0: Welcome to Music History Monday for August 8th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Abbey Road and This and That. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. August 8th is a great day, a signal day, an epic day for both good and bad reasons in the history of popular rock and jazz music. We'd observe a few of today's date-related events before moving on to our featured story. First, with heads respectfully bowed, we would note some of those who have passed away on this date. On August 8, 1940, 82 years ago today, the jazz clarinetist and alto saxophonist Johnny Dodds died of a heart attack in Chicago, all too young, at the age of 48. I have known Dodds's wonderful blues-inspired playing since I was a teenager, because that's when I fell under the spell of two of the greatest jazz ensembles of all time, Louis Armstrong's Hot Five, and Hot Seven, groups in which Dodds played and recorded. I wrote about Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven in Dr. Bob Prescribes on July 7th, 2020. On this date, in 1975, 47 years ago today, the jazz alto saxophonist and bandleader, Julian Edwin Cannonball Adderley, also died all too young, at the age of 46 in Gary, Indiana, from a stroke. Talk about being a member of an all-time great band and making all-time great recordings. Adderley signed on with the Miles Davis Band in October, 1957, which eventually also included Bill Evans, John Coltrane, Paul Chambers, and Jimmy Cobb. This Miles Davis sextet recorded an album entitled Kind of Blue in 1959. Kind of Blue remains and will always remain among the most important recordings in jazz history. It will be the subject of tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. On August 8, 2017, five years ago today, the American musical theater singer and actress Barbara Cook died at the age of 89 in New York City. Blessed with a gorgeous, clear-as-a-bell lyric soprano voice, Cook was one of the outstanding interpreters of the songs of the Great American Songbook. She was also one of those special Broadway performers who was totally dissed by the movie industry. Despite having won a Tony Award for her portrayal of Marion the Librarian in The Music Man, which opened in 1957, she was bypassed for the role in the movie version of 1962, which was given instead to the lesser, but more bankable singer-slash-actor, Shirley Jones, born 1934. Glenn Campbell also died on this date in 2017, He at the age of 81 in Nashville, Tennessee. In the 1960s and 1970s, (laughs) Glenn Campbell was everywhere, the renaissance man of the American entertainment industry. He was a Grammy Award-winning, Academy Award and Golden Globe-nominated actor and country pop singer, whose hits included By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Wichita Lineman, Rhinestone Cowboy, and Gentle on My Mind. He was a highly sought-after session guitarist who recorded with the Beach Boys, Elvis Presley, The Monkees, and Phil Spector. He was a television personality. From 1969 to 1972, he hosted his own weekly variety show, the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour. The comedy writers on that show, by the way, included Steve Martin and Rob Reiner. As an actor, He co-starred with John Wayne and Kim Darby in True Grit, 1969, a movie for which John Wayne, in the role of Rooster Cogburn, received his one and only Oscar for Best Actor. This and that. On August 8, 1992, and even 30 years ago today, a terrible accident occurred and a riot broke out, at a combined Metallica and Guns N' Roses concert at Olympic Stadium in Montreal. Metallica was on stage, rocking the house. A writer for the periodical Metal Voice named Perrin Wolfson was there. He remembered, quote, despite being in a huge stadium, they, Metallica, played and sounded great. And with the use of video screens, effects, and pyro, made people in the faraway areas of the stadium feel close. You sensed you were in the presence of all-time greats." And then it happened. The guitarist and vocalist, James Hetfield, born 1963, strayed too far forward and was hit with a 3,000-plus degree Fahrenheit blast of pyrotechnics on the left side of his body. Perrin Wolfson continues, quote, Build up to wave of pyro and the sound of a guitar going way out of tune and then the band disappears, and a whole lot of nothing, for a good ten minutes. I immediately said to my friend, something's wrong. The out-of-tune sound we had heard was James's strings and guitar melting from the pyroblast that hit James." A tearful Jason, Kirk, and Lars, along with a French translator, came out, explained briefly what had happened, and promised the band would come back to finish their show, which they did three months later. In short, Metallica were great. A horrible accident occurred, the band and crowd reacted cool and professionally, and things were made right. Metallica, who were always beloved in Montreal, became heroes that night." Footage of the incident, as well as interviews with the members of Metallica, is linked. Back to Perrin Wolfson's assertion that, quote, Metallica, who were always beloved in Montreal, became heroes that night, unquote. Unfortunately, the night wasn't over yet. It took over two hours, but Guns and Roses, finally took the stage. They could have saved the day and been heroes as well. But thanks to the lead singer Axel Rose, born William Bruce Rose Jr., 1962, things went from bad to worse to mayhem, writes Perrin Wolfson. Quote, maybe he didn't want to be there. Maybe he should have been in rehab. Maybe it was getting to him that Metallica were upstaging them, meaning Guns N' Roses, night after night. But he would sing each passing song with less enthusiasm, eventually just sitting on the drum riser, mouthing words and not even moving. Finally, Axel slammed down his mic and screamed, I'm out of here! The band, puzzled, followed Axel off the stage. Unquote. Apparently, the band proceeded to party backstage while Montreal burned. The fans swarmed the stage, then the merchandise booths around the venue, and finally the neighborhood around the stadium, overturning cars, setting fires, smashing windows, and looting stores. Bad Axel. Naughty fans. A better-behaved band on August 8, 1996, 26 years ago today, the band KISS appeared at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio, as part of their 192 concert date, A Live World Tour. During the course of the show, a fan threw his prosthetic leg onto the stage. One by one, the band members signed the leg and then handed it back to the fan, who was probably pleased not to have to continue standing on one leg. What? No Sayonara, the Japanese farewell song? On August 8, 2002, 20 years ago today, the biggest undertaking company in the United Kingdom, Co-op Funeral Services, reported that bereaved families preferred pop songs to hymns at funerals. At the top of the list was Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler. Other songs included Angels by Robbie Williams and My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. My personal favorite choices on the list were Queen's Another One Bites the Dust and Wake Me Up Before You Go Go by the group Wham. Finally, on to our featured event. On August 8th, 1969, 53 years ago today, the Beatles were photographed by Ian McMillan crossing the street for the cover of their Abbey Road album. It remains among the most iconic album covers of all time. And for the Beatles, their most controversial cover as well, being the only Beatles album that features neither the band's name nor the album's title. According to the cover designer, John Koch, the EMI bosses were furious with him for the cover's lack of branding, but he argued that, quote, The biggest band in the world, you don't have to say who they are, everyone knows who they are, unquote. Uh, yeah, I think so. The actual idea for the cover had been Paul McCartney's. Prior to the shoot, McCartney sketched out his idea for the cover. The photographer, Ian McMillan, who incidentally was a freelancer and a friend of John Lennon's and Yoko Ono's, then added a more detailed sketch in the upper right-hand corner of McCartney's, a sketch that comes astonishingly close to the finished photo. Ian McMillan used a Hasselblad camera with a 50 millimeter lens, aperture f22, set at one hundredths seconds for the shoot. To take the shots, he perched on a stepladder in the middle of the street. The boys walked back and forth across the street three times. Macmillan took a single shot for each traversal, six shots in total. Meanwhile, a policeman held up traffic. The whole thing only took a couple of minutes. Those six photos, in the order in which they are taken, can be seen in the blog version of this post. Having examined the contact sheet, Paul McCartney decided that the fifth shot was the best. It was the only photo in which the four were stepping in tandem. Just as importantly, they were walking away from EMI's Abbey Road studio, a subtle but clear message that Abbey Road was to be their final recording together. For our information, the Beatles' Let It Be album was released in May 1970, eight months after Abbey Road, but it had been recorded over a year before Abbey Road. Paul is dead. Well, not really. This was the album cover that, when released on September 26, 1969, gave birth to the theory that Paul McCartney had, in fact, been killed in a car accident in 1966 and had since been replaced by a McCartney doppelganger. According to the story, McCartney's bandmates, desperate to communicate the truth to their fans, planted a series of clues on the album cover. According to the Paul is Dead crowd, those clues are as follows. One, in the photo, Paul is leading with his right leg, while the other three beetles are stepping forward with their left legs. Oh, oh, this alone might be considered conclusive evidence that Paul McCartney was indeed dead, right? But wait, wait, there is more. Two, Paul is holding a cigarette. And as we knew, even back in 1969, smoking kills. Three, According to those eagle-eyed death theorists, the license plate on the Volkswagen Beetle, a Beetle, duh, in the left background, which reads 28 IF, means that Paul would have been 28 years old if he had survived, though in fact McCartney had just turned 27. Finally, and most persuasively, Paul is barefoot, while the other Beatles are fully shod, meaning that, that, um, Paul must be dead, right? Bummer about the facts, though, but in fact, as the photos of the shoot attest, Paul began the photo shoot wearing a pair of sandals. But it was a hot, muggy August day there in London, and according to the album designer, John Kosh, quote, The reason he kicked his shoes off was because they were too tight, unquote. McCartney made fun of the whole silly affair with the cover artwork and title of his 1993 concert album, Paul is Live. That cover shows Paul back on the Abbey Road crosswalk following a hairy dog on a leash. One last cool little detail to point out about the cover. George Harrison, who is pulling up the rear of the line, is dressed in denim. However, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and John Lennon are all wearing suits designed by the legendary Savile Row Couturier, the Welsh-born Tommy Nutter, 1943 to 1992. Because we all should know It was Tommy Nutter who designed Jack Nicholson's Joker suit for the Tim Burton 1989 movie Batman. In closing, a musician's work is never done. Having traipsed back and forth across Abbey Road on August 8, 1969, 53 years ago today, the Beatles walked back over to EMI's Abbey Road studio and went back to work. They recorded overdubs for the end, I Want You, She's So Heavy, and Oh Darling. No rest for the weary or for the foot sore. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.